I agree. So, uh, going through church history, obviously, and we're continuing to talk about funky things going on in France, because for a while things are going to be going on in France. But I got to stop and say, in 1795, Britain invades South Africa to save South Africa. And I, and I got to specify this, that they think they're being the good guys by invading South Africa. Um, you got to remember... Save them from what? Exactly. <laughs> Europe is changing. It keeps on changing. Keeps yeah. getting different. The map shifts. And increasingly, it's going to shift more and more, because that's the nature of history, it's going to shift more and more into something that is recognizable to us. It's going to start looking more and more like stuff. There isn't really a Germany. There isn't really an Italy yet. We're not. We're, we're used to seeing those things. They don't exist yet. But some things are changing. For instance, you'll notice Ukraine just exploded. Ukraine's like, yeah, we're taking over Eastern Europe. Growth. That you go, wow, because that's the way Eastern Europe looks now. No. Uh, white Russian states up here are growing and creating their own confederation. Oh, yeah. That's not the way it looks now. Tripoli is coming into its own. The Ottoman Empire is kind of starting to recede, and Tripoli is one of many different um, uh, states that are growing along that coast. Pardon me for just a moment. So the, things are changing. Things are looking different. You should also notice that France is on the move and invades the Dutch Republic in late 1794. How rude. There is no more Dutch Republic. Get over it. I know. It's, it's gone. We'll be back. We'll be back. Actually, they will. We will be back. We'll, we'll return. They totally will. But not not, to, not right now. Anyway, so that's gone. And then they're also fighting Spain and Portugal down in the Pyrenees Mountains at, at, on the border between Spain and, and uh, France. Because why is France attacking everybody? Well, they're, they're poor. Does this help the economy? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're poor. They're, they're anything. They're also stupid. They're very violent. Excuse, no, right now they're just—it's just bloody and nasty in France, and so anything that they can do to gain territory, to gain strength, they're—they're they're going for it. And then they start fighting Austria down in Piedmont in the, this Sardinia area and all that kind of stuff. So they're—they're they're fighting all their neighbors all over the place. Arguably so. Okay, part of also is not just that France is attacking everybody, but everybody's attacking France. Because Europe doesn't like France at the moment. They just killed their king. How do the other monarchies in Europe feel toward a, a place that not only just killed their king, but is being extremely violent and wild? I mean, everything is just falling apart. France is post-apocalyptic and killing kings. So the rest of Europe is going, we got to do something about France. Because France is kind of going wild. You feeling better? Good. Once they killed off Marie Antoinette, all bets are off. Why did that make a difference? She's Austrian and the sister of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, right? So once they kill off Marie Antoinette, Leopold II goes, okay, now it's on. You know, you, you kill my brother-in-law, and I say, I'm uncomfortable with that. I mean, not to be much, but he's basically like, this makes me uncomfortable on a philosophical level. Shouldn't be killing your kings. You kill my sister... Okay, now I'm actually going to respond. And so Austria is attacking them. Spain is attacking them. Spain, who has been kind of on-again, off-again supporter of France over the years. Mostly on-again, because they're about the only two Catholic kingdoms going. They're like, yeah, we're, we got to stick together. No, they're fighting each other. 
So Europe is fighting all over the place with France saying, somehow we've got to get you under control. Question. Yes. Uh, at first you say France was attacking other people, but it sounds like they're all attacking France. I don't think that's an either or issue. I mean, yes, so France is, France is pushing out their borders, but also everybody else is going, we're going to try to hem in France, which makes France want to expand their borders and attack different people, which makes everybody else want to attack them. It's, it's, it's... Chicken yeah, and egg first. Exactly, and this is chicken and egg in, in, in terms of wars. Yes, France is, France is feeling the need to expand. Everybody is feeling the need to conquer France. Okay, so they have the Napoleon complex Exactly. We'll talk about the Napoleon complex here in a sec. Okay, Britain ain't fighting nobody. And is happy about that. They're like, oh, we've been fighting everybody for decades. We're not fighting anybody. Our economy is actually getting better again. Yay. This is nice. They're like, we got we we got good relationship with America. Not our colony anymore. Not happy about that. But we've got good trading with them. We're we're everything is fine with that. We've got a growing colony over there in Australia. Life is good for England at the moment, especially since everybody in, in Europe is fighting with, with one another. Also, English stock is going, is going gangbusters. But to get to Australia, you have to stop at South Africa, which is held by the Dutch. But that's okay, because even though the Dutch and the British chafe, the Dutch have always been cool with the British stopping at South Africa and then going over to Australia. It's all right. That works out well. In fact, I, I want to clarify. Yes, the Dutch used to own Austra uh, uh, South Africa, right? Which is uh, which is why, if you listen to a South African accent, it sounds funky. It doesn't sound like British. It sounds like some combination of British and Dutch, because that's why. But um, they called the uh, the settlers there Afrikaners, which is why officially the language, the the Dutch-based language of South Africa, is called Afrikaans. But anyway, um, oh yeah, a large contingent of the Afrikaners were farmers, and the Dutch word for farmer is boer, which is why you have, sometimes we'll hear the, the South Africans referred to as boers, and we even had a boer war in the 19th century, so that's fine. Anyway, okay, but if you remember, France just invaded the Dutch Republic and took all their stuff, right? There is no Dutch Republic, so who now controls South Africa? If France took it, who's got it? France really, really, really hates England. And France now controls... You, you're doing the math here with me? How long is it going to be before uh, the French send troops out to all the Dutch colonies to control the Dutch colonies like South Africa and keep England from being able to go to Australia? So if you're England, what do you do? That's right! preemptively invade South Africa and take it over temporarily. We're not going to hold it. We're just going to hold on to it until the Dutch get their, you know, get back up on their feet. Once the Dutch Republic is back and everything's fine, we'll just hand it right back to them. Right? No, that's, that's exactly what they did. For anybody going, yeah, right. No, they said, we're going to take this over temporarily, and once the Dutch Republic gets back up on its feet, we're totally handing it back to the Dutch. In 1803, when the Dutch Batavian Republic got on its feet and up and running, England returned everything that they took. They took a whole bunch of Dutch colonies, and then once the Batavian Republic is cool, England said, here, take your colonies back, including South Africa. So they really did. They gave it back. This is like one of those good guy moments in history where you go, 
Seriously? If you're ever playing diplomacy and somebody goes, I'll move in there this turn to protect it, and you can have it back next turn. That's what England actually did. Yay! So did they have to fight, or did you just send troops there to guard? The, the British? Yeah. Yeah, they sent troops there. Right? They, no, they didn't have to. No, the Dutch Republic, the, the, so the Dutch settlers down there went, oh, thank you. Oh, okay. And so they occupied it, and they sent ships down there and said, no, French can get to come down here. Now, the, the Dutch is predominant down there now. Yeah. The mines I visited, they were all Dutch guys that were running there. Yep. A lot of Dutch names, although for anybody that has really tracked this thing, you go, well, I, gosh, I thought South Africa was controlled by Britain, but it's got a lot of Dutch names, but I thought it was controlled by Britain. That's because uh, by 1806, they realized the, the Batavian Republic is weak, and so they took it back. They gave it to them. They genuinely gave it to them. And then the Batavian Republic is like, we can't hold on to anything. You notice we don't have a Batavian Republic now, right? So the Batavian Republic didn't last real long, and so the British said, oh, we're totally taken back. Which is why you get a bunch of Dutch names, you get people speaking Afrikaans, you get people with a very funky Dutch-sounding British accent, but it was held by Britain for an extended period of time. And here's why. But it originally was, they're just trying to save it from France. I want to give them credit that that's really what they meant. Just saying. Okay. This is the time of treaties. Everybody's starting to do treaties with one another. And I say, I say here, treaties ended hostilities, sort of. Treaties are only, only as good as the treaties you make and whether or not you, you actually hold to them. So, for instance, the War of the Pyrenees just keeps going on and on. France is only making marginal progress. They're beating Spain, but not by a whole lot. They would have made more progress, but they hampered their own military by giving them civilian overseers, which, by the way, never a good idea. Yeah. That sounds awful. It is. The French had what they called representatives on mission from the National Committee that oversaw everything going on in the wars. So, so you, if you're a general, you've got to pass everything by these guys. I love this picture because this, this guy has given himself a military-looking uniform with the most ridiculous hat I've ever seen. And he's thinking, look, I'm military. You've never been in the military at all. You have no idea. You're a politician. And you're in charge of the war effort? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the guys had total authority and then had next to no experience about warfare. And so whenever a battle was lost, and it was usually lost because the general had to pass everything by the representative on mission who then interfered and kept everything going. Whenever a battle was lost, the representatives always blamed the generals and then sent them back to Paris to be executed. Because if you lost a battle, you get guillotine. Who wants to be a general now? Nobody! They're burning through military leaders like, like, well... Why did they have the civilian representatives in the first place? Because the people have to make the decision. This is a democracy. Not some general. The people make the decision. That's not how you win wars, doofus. Okay, ironically, I would say that I would totally agree with Churchill that democracy is the worst possible form of government. Except for all the others. <laughs> I, I, but this idea of doing things by committee is a horrible idea in some situations. There are a lot of situations where you want to sit down and say, let's discuss this. Let's everybody pull our resources and thoughts. There are some where you go, no, pick somebody who knows what he's doing or what she's doing and let them do it. War is one of those situations where you go, figure out somebody who actually knows what they're doing and let them be in charge. This 
not a good idea. But the whole idea is like, we're now a republic. We're now the people decide. And of course, we're already starting to get to the point where we go, and by people you mean the national committee, the politicians. That's what I mean by people. Well, yeah, those who are still alive. And who two years ago were uh, barbers and stockbrokers. It's like, do you even know how to run a government? Well, we had Lafayette. Oh, we got rid of him. Anyway, so Spain and France uh, signed what's called the, the, the Treaty of Il Defonso, in which they agreed to stop fighting. They're like, we're going to call it a draw, and we're just going to stop, because this isn't going anywhere. French are marginally winning, but we keep killing most of our own leaders. We're done. You know, British, nobody's fighting the British. So how about we pool our resources and we all say we hate England together? Can we Down at least agree British. with that? What? Down with the British. Down with the British. We're romance languages. Let's just stand together being romance languages and hating England. Okay. England is working with this, what's, what they call the coalition of European nations, like the Netherlands, the Holy Roman Empire. Everybody's trying to hem in France, and they're like, this is crazy world, and we're going to try to work together. They call this the first coalition because there was more than one. But there been, this is one of those times where you're like, everybody else thinks you're nuts. By the way, even the papal states who have been big supporters of France up to this point are part of our coalition. Why? Why does the Pope himself now hate France? Yeah, they got rid of the church. They killed all the priests. They said, we hate Jesus. And it's like, well, yeah, suddenly, suddenly Rome is saying, how do we help you, England? Talk about strange bedfellows. But this is why Spain started fighting again with England after having at least some time where they hadn't been, which meant that they started losing islands all over the place. They lose Menorca over here. They lose Trinidad. Ever wonder why Trinidad, in the middle of the Caribbean, is a British holding? Right over here. Because they said, sure, fine, we'll fight England. England, we hate you. And England's like, we've got wonderful navy and you've got nothing. So we'll start taking all of your stuff. So Spain starts feeling pinched. Spain starts getting stepped on. And step, desperate to make friends with somebody other than France. Because um, also the, the Pope is sitting there going, don't be friends with France. And Spain's like, but we love the Pope. We're still Catholic. The Pope's like, well, we don't like France. It's like, Can somebody please be my friend? So they start trying to make friends with America. Because they're like, we could lose everything. We could lose our colonies over there. We've got to do something. So a guy named Thomas Pinckney, former war veteran, governor of, California, of, of South Carolina, now he's the current ambassador to, to Britain, and he's a, the envoy extraordinary to Spain, negotiates a deal with Spain. He's like, tell you what, we'll be your friends. We'll keep trade open between us. We'll prop We've had an unfortunate background of where both Spain and America keep arming Native American tribes and pointing them at the other one's colonies and saying, go kill them. We won't do that. Let's be buddies. And Spain goes, yes, 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 let's be buddies. And he says, just give us the Mississippi. So if you notice, we just grew a little bit, just a little bit. We get like Alabama, Mississippi, that's it. That's huge. How big, a, how big a deal is it that you get to control the mouth of the Mississippi? That's a really big deal. Yeah, study any kind of any kind of Civil War history, you go, really important who owns the Mississippi, who controls that. So it might seem like a big, like a little thing. It's a really big thing. Like, okay, so America is starting to shape up. Now we finally figured out the, the shape of, of Florida. Does that look like Florida now? No, it actually looks like Florida. You go, yep, things start. 
Increasingly, as this class goes on, things are going to start looking like the things that you are familiar with them looking like. Anyway. Yes. Sides of the light posts have four different uh, uh, countries on them. Each side of the post is a different country that is owned a place. So it's what? Spain, France, the U.S., and the C.S. Oh yeah. Post. But right, right now, who owns who owns uh, Louisiana? Who owns New Orleans? No. No. This is Spain. This is still Spain. So right now, Spain. Owns all of this. There's, there's about uh, several thousand Spaniards floating around here in this area. A lot of them are priests and things. They've yet to really settle a lot. Of <laughs> got down here. They got some down in, in Florida, but nothing like what the, the 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 English and the Dutch have over here in the American uh, in the United States. I can I call it the United States now. It's kind of fun. Okay, America signs another treaty, because we're talking about treaties, and I know, treaties are exciting. But talk about the Treaty of Tripoli. Trip, Tripoli's become... Who said ooh? Tripoli. Oh, okay, Tripoli. So, um, Tripoli's becoming a big deal, right, in the politics of the Barbary Coast. And you remember when... We've talked about the Barbary Coast before, but let me clarify again. This, this northwestern section of Africa is called the Barbary Coast. Have you heard that expression before? All right. Name comes from the nomadic Berber people who lived there. And the Berbers got their name from the same source that the barbarians did in Europe. Remember what that, where they came from? They can't speak. They can't understand. They sound like they just say Berber. It's the Latin way of saying the Greek word barbaros, meaning an uncivilized people who are talk that silly bar, bar, bar talk, that gibberish instead of perfectly good Greek. That's what that means. That's what the Greeks are. It says you just go ba 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 ba. How dismissive is that? It's like, so tell me where you're from. Oh, I'm from Tripoli. Oh, ba 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 ba. Monkey. Okay, go ahead. What did you? What? Yes, that's that's the way the Greeks treated people. That's the way the Romans treated people. That's what a barbarian is. That's who the Berbers are. So to the Greeks, a barbarian is anybody who doesn't speak Greek. To the Romans, a barbarian is anybody who doesn't speak Latin. Uh, to the to them, the people in North Africa are thus barbarians because they're Berbers. Thus, the Barbary Coast. So, anytime you hear somebody talk about the Barbary Coast, literally what they're saying is, where people just go bar 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 and talk their gibberish. I would think so. <laughs> I mean, but does anybody actually realize that's what that? I don't know, but I would think anybody who did would go, "Hey." Like, I don't want to call it that. Like, I mean, I don't know if I call it. I mean, I knew about the Berber people because I've had friends who are missionaries and everything, mm -hmm. but like, I didn't know that's where that came from. Wacky fun. Now, if you aren't familiar with the word bar or phrase Barbary Coast, you might know Barbary Pirates. Um, and, and those are a bunch of pirates from the Barbary Coast. Go figure. That whole northwestern chunk, you know, from, up, from here all the way through that, uh, that hump, um, was really big into slavery. That's where the, the Portuguese got all their slaves. That's, that's where we bought and sold slaves and things. And their pirates attacked any ship that they could find, stole their cargo, and enslaved the crew and passengers. That's where they got a lot of good European slaves. 
they were famous, and it, it's become so, it was so prevalent that it became, it's become kind of a, an historical meme. They loved enslaving European women. That was a big seller in like the Algerian markets is, look, you could buy a white woman. It's just the way it is. And so they, they did, you'll find from the, like the 19th century all sorts of paintings all about you know, Barbary Coast slave markets, etc. American shipping had been safe from the Barbary pirates because we had the British Navy behind us. The British Navy was an awesome Navy, right? But then we had a Revolutionary War. So we didn't have the English Navy protecting our shipping anymore, right? And we had no real Navy. We had a couple of frigates, but that's it. We didn't really have much of a Navy. So what do we do? What do you do about the Barbary Pirates when now your ships are fair game? There are no Marines. All right. They sing it in their songs from the shore of Triple A. And this is why. If you've ever wondered why do you say from the halls of Montezuma, that's one set of battles, to the shores of Tripoli, this is why. Um, Tripoli is becoming a big deal in the politics of the Barbary Coast and is a main supporter and safe haven for the Barbary pirates. Just like we sometimes look at some Middle Eastern nations today and say, you're harboring terrorists, you go, right, they're harboring Barbary pirates, amongst other nations there. So, 1796, new president John Adams comes along and signs a treaty with the various Barbary states. Tripoli, Algiers, Morocco, Tunis, all this stuff. And he says, we're going to give you a lot of money. Don't attack us. Don't enslave our people. We'll annually give you a ton of money. Thus, that's exactly what it is. It's exactly what they did with uh, Apple in, 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 uh, in Europe way back in the day. This is what we're doing now. You're going to make more money doing nothing than you would by doing bad things to us. So, yes, we paid them off. It's a protection racket. It worked. It worked. Did it really? Actually, it did. Because, because the, uh, the governments... Now, you're still propping up terrorist regimes. You're still actually supporting piracy. But, yeah, I mean, once we gave them enough money, they went, okay, give us an annual stipend. We'd much prefer to have the annual stipend than do nothing. Can we? So we either make a lot of money doing absolutely nothing, or we make a lot of money working hard. <laughs> the pirates. I vote we do nothing. Man, I gotta set you guys up, and nobody's fighting. <laughs> so, in our treaty with the extremely Muslim Tripoli, we had to assure them that they wouldn't have any problems dealing with a Christian nation like ours. So in our treaty with Tripoli, we wrote, as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity toward, against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims, and as the said states never entered into any war or an act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that have that no pretext arising from religious opinion shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. We are not a Christian nation, and there will never be a time when we ever judge another nation because they're Muslim. We promise this. Wow. Now, so have we broken the treaty? Have we ever to anybody because they're Muslim? Have we ever, as a nation, declared that we are going to have special rules for Muslims? Absolutely not. It would be a breaking of our tree. We don't do that. Okay. Recently, yeah, it people. Keeps its word. Exactly. 
Recently, there have been a lot of people commenting about this on a number of different levels. Uh, I heard somebody not too awful long ago even bring something up about this with regard to presidential candidates. Um, but over the last couple of decades, people have brought this up a lot saying, look, we were never a Christian nation. I will say, it is telling that within 10 years of being a, a, a constitutional nation, we are putting on paper that we are flinging our Christian heritage to the wind when it is politically expedient to do so. When we're dealing with a scary Muslim nation, we want to tell them it's not like we're Christians. Because if there's anything that a Muslim respects, it's people who don't take their religion seriously. Right? Yeah. So, if you remember, Franklin, even at that constitutional convention, is like, you do realize, we need to build our Christianity into the base of this. Otherwise, we are going to start going south, and we're going to do so quickly. We're going to lose sight of what we're doing. It will go bad. Remember that? Yeah, within 10 years, we're just like, oh, Ben, you're old. No, no, no. This will work great. Was born old. <laughs> All right. Moving away from from uh, from treaties for a moment. Guy named Edward Jenner administers a safe smallpox vaccine, which is kind of important. Smallpox, nasty disease. I actually looked up because you know I always like to give you pictures. I'm not giving you pictures of this. It's an unpleasant disease. I know. Go figure. Uh, terminal in about 35% of the cases. And in the people who didn't die, there is usually nasty scarring, there is mental debility, there is sterility. It's just not a nice disease. Um, and so there had been a lot of attempts to create a cure, at least a preventative measure, but they were inconsistent enough. Do you remember that Jonathan Edwards died because he got a smallpox vaccination back in 1758? That's, that's how Jonathan Edwards died, was trying to get inoculated against smallpox. Though I should say that's not entirely accurate because there had never been a vaccine prior to 1796. Nobody had ever been vaccinated for anything prior to this, because the term was coined by Edward Jenner in 1796. The term vaccination. What is, does anybody know the etymology of that? What does vaccinating mean? Uh, it's actually from Latin. Okay, well, we'll get to this. He was investigating how to prevent smallpox, and, and the local villager said, oh, I'll tell you, i tell you, if you want to marry a woman who, never, who will never be scarred by the pox, marry a milkmaid. So then he laughed at it. He's just like, old wives' tale. And then statistically, he's like, wait, this totally bears out. Milkmaids aren't getting smallpox. No milkmaid is getting smallpox. Everybody else is getting smallpox. Milkmaids aren't getting smallpox. Wait, this might not be superstition. This... This might actually be something. They would contract cowpox from the cows, which is a very, very, very diluted, very mild form of smallpox. It's, very, it's related to it. They would get a light fever, they'd get a lesion or two, and then they'd be okay, and then they would never get smallpox. He's like, well, wait a minute. Somehow, the cowpox infection is an inoculation against the smallpox infection. So how do you test this? That's right. He took the fluid from the lesion of a local milkmaid and purposely infected the eight-year-old son of his gardener with it. What? The kid's fine. He got some lesions. He had a fever. Big, fat, hairy deal. He's eight. It's my gardener. I can do what I want. If you didn't like that, you'll love this. And then he infects the kid with smallpox. 
Because he's like, here's here's what I do. Where's the FDA in all this? <laughs> well, first off, this is England. Um, so, but he's like, all right, so here you go. The kid is over with his cowpox infection, got his lesion, got his fever, and now it's over. Now I'm going to infect him with smallpox, and nothing happens. He tries it, and he's like, I think I just figured this out. I think I just figured out how to stop smallpox. What do you do yeah. Well, because then who's going to finish the experiment? The eight-year-old? Come on. Unless he'd already had this. So the gardener gave him permission? Yeah. Well, it's the gardener. Dude, give the hell. You may experiment on my child. <laughs> you guys need to watch more PBS. Because you need to understand that in England, they're the hell. They're furniture. They're not like people. Okay? They have their own servants' quarters. And... I don't know if you've ever picked this up watching some of these things on PBS, but there's like two houses going on. There's two sets of stairs, two sets of everything. There's the house that, you know, people live in that servants seem to haunt. And then there's the home where the servants live, which doesn't look anything necessarily like the other one. And and the other people never go to that part. And the servants are supposed to just do stuff without ever being seen. They're like vacuum cleaners. They're not slaves. They're just... They're not people, they're, they're furniture. Anyway, so he calls it a vaccination, after the Latin word vaca, meaning cow. So if you've ever been vaccinated, you have literally been cowed. That's what that means. So there's never been a vaccination prior to that, because nobody cowed anybody before. Anyway, that's just wacky fun, I thought you'd like to know. All right. Same year, France wins, wins the Battle of Montenot. They're still fighting the Austrians down here in Sardinia, Piedmont. They're going on and on and on. This just goes on forever. And they've been burning through military commanders pretty quickly, right? Because they keep taking back to, to France and, and guillotine. So they're starting to promote really young officers to generals. Um, and multiple young officers going, I don't want to be a general. Because you, if you lose a battle, you get killed. So, not a lot of fun. One of those officers is a 26-year-old general starting his very first command. A guy from Corsica named... Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte, who's from Corsica. He's not technically French. All the best French generals, not from France. Just, I'm just saying. Look back at history, it's true. Um, under his command, the French suddenly pound on the Austrians. He's just... A savant. This is his very first military command. Is a general. He want. He was like, okay, you want to join the military? You want to lieutenant captain? General. I'm a. I'm a what now? Go. Pounds on him. Destroys them. Moves on. Wins two more battles in three days. Keeps winning. Keeps winning. Keeps winning. Keeps winning. Everything he touches, it's just golden. He doesn't just win. He wins soundly. And he's particularly good with cannon. He's awesome at artillery. Napoleon's this instant hero, an instant media celebrity. Remember, this is a French Republic that's just starting out, and they're, everybody's fighting them. Their economy, the reason they had a, a revolution is because their economy was shot. They are desperate to have somebody to put in the newspapers to say, we rock. And so they took this course again, and like, they said, great French general. Yes? Was he working under the auspices of one of these civilian people at this point? Or did they just let him do his thing? No, he, he actually was working under the auspices of the civilian contractor. And he didn't care. And this is the thing. If there's any one thing you can learn from history, you've got to be careful, but it's true. 
you can break every rule if you win. Now, most of the time, every once in a while, you can do everything right, and people still go, "Nope, nope, you're done." Or you lose your head. Or you can't. But it, but but Napoleon is a walking example of going. I don't care about your stupid rules. And you go, well, then let's keep, oh, he keeps winning. And once you become a famous person and they put you in the newspapers for winning, it's hard to say, and you made one mistake, we're going to bring you back in guillotine. Not impossible, but every time you win and every time your, your face is on the front page of time, it's a little harder to kill you later. And so Napoleon is doing well and he's beginning to ignore his, his representative on, on mission because he can't. And let's deal with this right now. Let's get this out of the way because I, I don't want you thinking wrong about Napoleon as we go through. He is not a short guy. He's not a short guy who walks around with his hand in his vest, which is the way so many Americans, yes, it's the way so many Americans tend to think of him. He was he, shorter than me. Yes, but everybody is. He's five foot six. He was average height. That's average height for his day because I would be considered tall back then. He's average height, five foot six, totally normal guy. There's a discrepancy between the British inch and the French inch. They are slightly different sizes. And so when the British heard that he was only five foot two, they're like, woohoo, in French measurements, because the French measurements just a little bit longer. Here he's five foot two, they're like, yay, he's just a little guy. He's not scary. Because they're terrified of what they're reading about this guy. But no, he's just a little bitty guy. People say, no, actually, he's average height. He's just like everybody else. No, he's like a midget! No, he's really not. <laughs> Even today, we use the term Napoleon complex to talk about a short man who is trying to overcompensate for his feelings of inadequacy, right? It's the Napoleon complex, which is a total thing. That's really a thing. But Napoleon didn't have one, okay? He just was Napoleon. You know, he's, just, he's not a complex, but he didn't have a Napoleon complex. <laughs> Secondly, yes, he's famous for portraits like this. Yes, he Everybody is. Everybody like Exactly! That was extremely common. That's George Washington. That's Mozart. Lots of people had hands in their vests when they're... In fact, that was into the 19th century. That's Karl Marx. That's General Sherman. Everybody has their hand in their vest. Why? Keep them warm. Keep them warm, okay. Well, keep it still while they're doing the... There you go. It's a really good way to keep still for an extended period of time because it takes a while to paint your portrait. It takes a while to take your photograph in the 19th century. But this way you can, you can stay still while still looking relatively reposed and, uh, and dignified. So you put your hand in your... It's, it's common. So please do not think of him as a short guy who keeps sticking his hand in his vest. Not the way... People are like, how does he get anything done when he's walking on the <laughs> Don't do that. And it's, it's an amazing number of movies are forever showing him like that and even humorously trying to explain that. So everybody was doing it. Okay. 1797. Napoleon invades Italy. And again, I have to say, there is no Italy, right? There is no Italy at this time. Right. There is an Italian peninsula that has a lot of kingdoms on it, but there's no Italy any more than there's an Iberia. There's an Iberian Peninsula, but there's no Iberia, there's no Italy. So, for instance, Venice over here, this blue guy's over here, they've been an independent kingdom for over a thousand years. They wouldn't see themselves as 
Italian. In fact, most of Venice is around the Adriatic, right? So this, that's Venice. Okay. Then Napoleon came along and changed all that, invading both Venice and the Papal States, because he doesn't care about the Papal States, right? So, now they're just the Italian and Adriatic provinces of France. This is now France. I mean, that's just part of what he's done. He's going to start invading. He's going to be dumb enough to try to invade Russia, but that's a couple years down the line. You can probably see why Europe is suddenly going, never invade Russia. <laughs> if you've ever played Risk, you've ever played Diplomacy, you've ever seen a World War II movie, don't invade Russia. <laughs> Or if you do, time it very, very well. <laughs> don't invade Russia. Uh, but you can see where the rest of Europe's like, this guy's dangerous. He just took Rome. French troops are marching through Rome. For those of you going, uh, World War II, pop, here, yeah, those mean old French troops are marching through Rome. Maybe the Germans can come along and save Rome from those French. I love history. Anyway, France and America even go to war. Sort of. Because you've heard about the quasi-war between France and America in 1798, right? Kind of an important one, Christat. Some other people just like, Revolutionary War, Civil War, wait, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Revolutionary War, Civil War? You just skipped over like 90 years! Oh, yeah, okay, there's that other one. Oh, well, that's later. Mexican-American. No, that was back in the 1750s. Now, this is France and America going to war, sort of, under Adams' administration, I love this, Adams realized that the massive amount of debt that we owe to France because of all their massive amount of help in the Revolutionary War is actually owed to the French monarchy. And since they abolished the French monarchy, they abolished our debt. We don't owe you guys nothing. Which I love. I think that's a dirt. But it is true, technically, we owe the French crown which doesn't exist anymore. The French didn't appreciate it. We were like, yeah, we're no longer going to be paying you back for any of that. What the fact that we're having to pay off the property pirates, right? So all the stuff that we would have given to you, we're giving to them. And the French are like, that's not good. And so they, they started attacking American ships in what became known as the Quasi-War, the Sorta War. And that is the official name for it, the Quasi-War, the Sorta War on the ocean. Since we didn't have much of a navy, remember? That's the whole reason why we're paying off the Barbary Pirates in the first place. We created a force of infantry that we put on naval vessels. Because we're like, if we're being boarded and we don't have much of a navy, what we can do is put a bunch of infantry guys with guns on our ships so that they're hard to board. That way we can fight against the Barbary Pirates, we can fight against the French, and so we create the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, because think about what it's named. It's the Corps on the sea, the Marine Corps. It's a, it's a naval infantry. There have been Marine Corps at various times in history. The British had Marines. Um, there had been Marines during the Revolutionary War, but they, again, they'd all been disbanded, right? The, the Army, the Navy, the, the Marines had all been disbanded after the Revolutionary War. We have a standing army now because of... The Little Turtle War. Oh my gosh. Remember the Little Turtle War? That whole Northwest? Okay. Pardon me? Yeah, that's right, because we had a whole discussion about that. We're, we've got 
want to have somebody policing those Ohio territories. So we have a standing army now, which we've never had before. Now we have a standing Marine Corps sitting on our vessels. And we're realizing maybe we ought to start building up a Navy, what with the fact that we keep getting stepped on by everybody because we got no Navy. So now we've got the Marines, who, amongst other things, fought in Tripoli against the Barbary Pirates, which is why the Marine Corps song talks about from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We did eventually stop paying them, but that's kind of an interesting, we'll get to that. 1798, the Irish Rebellion, the high point in history. Quasi war, so we just had a couple of skirmishes, and that was it. Um, and, and it went on to, for about um, two, three years. But then uh, we, we actually, Napoleon realized it's actually better to do diplomacy than it is to keep shooting everybody. And so about 1801, started getting better at doing the whole diplomacy thing and made friends with America and no longer attacked our ships. It also helped that Napoleon didn't know from navies. So, I mean, all of his military budget is going into building more cannons, more, more troops. So he wanted to focus more of his efforts on infantry and artillery um, and, and didn't care that much about the Navy. So it, it just, between, between Napoleon trying to do more diplomacy with America and not caring as much about the Navy, that whole quasi-war kind of fizzled. It never, it never officially ended, but it also never officially began. So, okay, Irish Rebellion. The American Revolution worked. The French Revolution worked, sort of. Well, they got rid of being, you know, having monarchs over them. So the Irish are like, hey, wait a minute. It's our time. It's our time. Led by a guy named Wolf Tone. Wolf Tone. <laughs> <laughs> the Society of United Irishmen planned their revolt. He's dressed in a French military uniform because France rocks. We're going to be like France. Well-trained Irish expatriate troops, they've been trained in France, are going to be shuttled over to Ireland by the French Navy and then supported by the mighty French Navy. This will work. I mean, we've got a lot of, of, of Irish troops. The Irish people will rise up. The French Navy is there to support us. Free Ireland, once and for all. I mean, we're not technically part of the Great, great uh, Britain anyway. We're just kind of sitting there and they got more guns than we do, but that's not the same thing. We're occupied by England, but that doesn't mean we're part of it. But being the English Channel, do you remember what happened? Like the Spanish Armada, do you remember what almost happened to D-Day? Most of those ships, they're all caught in this massive storms trying to get over to Ireland. Most of them sink, other ones have to turn around. No Irish troops land. No French ships are there. And now England knows what's going on. Because they're like, hey... And they find out that there's going to be this big fight over here in Ireland. So England starts imposing martial law in Ireland, implementing, they, they do uh, preemptive imprisonments, not just imprisoning people, but suspected, or even just telling troops, go imprison 30 people from this village. Find a reason. But we've got to show that we're in charge here. Uh, torturing, pitch camping. Anybody ever hear of pitch camping? Think of it as a really nasty way of scalping people. You put pitch on, let it dry, rip. Um, really nasty. Nasty. That's a British thing. Other nastiness is to suppress the Irish people. Ireland hates England. But they also began this wonderfully effective practice of propaganda in Ireland, convincing the Protestants and all those people who didn't really care that all of this was basically just 
a bunch of rowdy papists egged on by Catholic France. If you knew anything, you'd go, what Catholic France? There is no Catholic France anymore. Who cares? Who cares? Twitter works, doesn't it? There are a lot of people that are just going to read something and go, yeah, check it out. Somebody said 100 words on my phone. Or 100 words, 100 characters on my phone. Totally going to change my world. No, I won't Google it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, it's just a bunch of wacky papists. We all need to pull together, us Protestants and non-wacky papists. Which totally worked! This worked particularly well in the northern section of Ireland that was predominantly Protestant, because Cromwell had forcibly taken Protestants over there and, and taken over. But even the southern parts, this began to work. Even the Catholic parts, not only did they sit there and go, you're right, those are just a bunch of wacky terrorists, but the whole idea of nationalism in Ireland became wrapped up in Catholicism. It's the Catholics versus the Protestants. It's not just Irish freedom, it's Irish Catholicism. Which is great if you're wanting to beat a particular drum and get people to want to follow it. Except it's lousy for anybody to ever want to help you if they're not as rabid a Catholic as you are. And it just wraps all this up together. If you're a Catholic, you will want to kill Englishmen. It's what you'll do if you're a good Catholic. It's like, no, it's, it's all convoluted. England played up all that factionalism, pitting the Protestants against the Catholics and dividing the country and dividing their loyalties. It became an official practice to give preferential treatment to Protestants, particularly influential landowners and businessmen. And what became known as the Protestant Ascendancy. The Protestants are taking over this country, and for the first time we're making this official. If you're a Protestant, now you're in charge. If you're a Catholic, you're not. So there are a lot of people converted to Protestantism. And there are a lot of people who said, no, I'm going to be a Catholic, I'm going to be a revolutionary. It just polarized the country immensely. Everything that you see in Ireland now, 1798. This is, I mean, we've seen it brewing, we've seen it even back with Cromwell, but definitely at this point. They even formed the Orange Order, which is a fraternal order of Protestant Irishmen named in honor of William of Orange, that Protestant king of England from... The Netherlands, that's right. Because everybody's just everybody. Anyway, 1801, the nationalistic movement has been completely suppressed. There is no nationalistic movement, and Ireland is officially brought in under the Kingdom of Great Britain. There is no Ireland anymore, other than, like, there's a Wales and there's a Scotland, there's a geographic area, but as an entity, you go, no, nope, it's all just Great Britain. Which is either a bad thing or a good thing, depending on what side of that you're on. Now, as part of the Acts of Union of 1801, all the different flags of Great Britain are brought together into one unified flag. If you remember, England has been flying St. George's Cross for years, right? You see this? This is England, St. George's Cross. Scotland has flown St. Andrew's Cross as their flag. And so when those two came together in 1606, they created the Great Union flag, which is those two flags stuck together. Or when Britain is, England is feeling particularly snarky, they fly this version of it. Because Great Britain is important on the shoulders of England. Right? It's all, we're all together, but all together under the auspices of England. Let's just make sure we clarify that. But, Ireland flew a bunch of different flags, most pointedly and most normally, St. Patrick's Cross up there. Which means that in 1801, they just added the Irish flag to the Great Union flag. Or Wales. Why don't 
It's a red dragon, and it's right here. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? You actually, I, I, I heard Welshmen talk about this. They go, there is. There's a red dragon, but you can't see it against the red. There's a red dragon right there. Wow. <laughs> like that. My hat's off to you. <laughs> the, AKA the Union Jack uh, that you're all so familiar with. So this is where the Union Jack came from. So during the Revolutionary War, it didn't look like that. Nope. During the Revolutionary War, there were, um, it didn't have these red bars here in, in those corners. Um, and, and the battle flag, it was usually like a, a, a red flag with this up in the corner. So it used to be like a white flag with that up the corner. Surrendering stuff. Wait, no, no, not that. So it's just red flag with that up in the corner. This is what they usually have. So anytime that you, anytime the Revolutionary War paintings, did you see the British holding this? No. Or that horrid, beautifully painted, horrid German painting from the 1850s of Washington crossing the Delaware, standing up in the wrong kind of boat in the middle of the day with an American flag behind him. You just go. No, 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 no. All right, anyway. So, <laughs> yes, he is. 1799, a guy named Schleiermacher published a book called On Religion. He was born in Prussia, and Friedrich Schleiermacher was raised as a Moravian pietist. Now, let's, go, let's take that apart. Remember, the Moravians were followers of Jan Hus, who was, remember that guy? Killed by the Catholics because he believed that the, the kind of heresies, and horrible heresies, like that worship could be done in your own language, that the Bible is something that everybody should read, that communion is at its core a remembrance, all these things that are just heinous. Because the Bible never talks about communion being something where you're supposed to remember stuff. The Bible never says that anybody should be reading their Bible. And the Bible never indicates that we should be reaching out to people where they're at in their own cultures. Rome clarified this. I also followed a guy named Jakob Hutter, who had been killed by the Catholics because he believed the heresies that war and violence were bad. That's an irony. War and violence are bad. Well, kill him! How dare he say that? That baptism was for those who actively repented and that the church should live like a community of faith. You should probably live this out. So everybody said, no, you're wrong. You're being killed. Yeah. They also, the pietists, followed the teachings of Spener. Remember we talked about him? who said, if you're really going to be a Christian, you need to live a life that reflects that. You need to be in the Word. You need to be studying. You need to be interacting with people about Christ. You need to be helping your neighbor live like Jesus told you to live. Otherwise, they're going to wonder what kind of a faith you have. So that's what Schleiermacher grew up with, these kinds of mentalities, right? That's great. And that's a, he loved that. That's all wonderful in terms of living out your faith. He just wasn't sure that he had one. Do I actually believe any of the things that I see in the Bible? Do I have a faith? I mean, yes, you should help your fellow man. Yes, you should build bridges in Paraguay. But this whole gospel thing, I don't know. So I went to university, which is a wonderful place to lose your faith. So he went to a good Enlightenment university where he decided that you really should read the Bible more as a secular document. Don't look at it for theology. Don't look at it for doctrine. Look at it as just a, a reflection of its times. And thus is born the viewpoint of liberal Christianity. Which means I need to stop, because liberal Christianity isn't the same thing as liberal politics. When I say those things, I talk about liberal Christians versus conservative Christians. People go, yeah, good conservative Republican Christians and bad liberal Democrat Christians. No, it doesn't work like that. 
They're not really related. The idea is that you should be liberal. You should keep an open mind and not retreat to dogma to make your cases. If you're going to make a biblical point, make it with an open mind. Don't just do doctrine. Instead, you should look at the Bible and theology from a vantage point of higher criticism, where you evaluate the documents based on their original historical and cultural contexts. That makes sense, right? Not just what's the church's knee-jerk traditional interpretation of this, what does it say originally? What did it mean to them at the time? The question isn't, what does this mean? Some sort of cosmological, for all time, this has a meaning. But really, what did it mean to them at that time? Which also means, what does it mean to you in your time? Because those could be two different things, and that's okay. Because in a Bible study, you should really hear more and more of the phrase, what I feel like this means to me, Schleiermacher. I love that. Okay. He thought religion, at its core, is just a reflection of its cultural context, both its original one and its modern one. It's designed to accomplish certain societal goals. So what's that context and what are those goals? That's what you should be looking at when you're looking at religion. Now, I should say, the basic notion of, of rhetorical criticism, the idea that artifacts, communication artifacts, are best understood if you understand their cultural context, I'm all for that. That's where I got my first master's in. That's, that's me all over the place. But that doesn't mean that that's all religion is. It's just a reflection of its social context. Yes, the document reflects its context. And to best understand, you need to understand what the writers were meaning there. But then you apply that as universal truth to now. The truth that they are getting at then is still just as true today in exactly the same way. It may play itself out differently. And you may have to understand how they said what they said back then to understand what the point that they're getting at. But that truth doesn't change, which is my fundamental problem with what's going on here, higher criticism. Yeah, by starting out and saying the question isn't, what does this mean? Well, it is. It is. But it's just the other question probably needs to be evaluated first in order to get to that. So the question is, what does this mean? Figured out by what did it mean to them at the time? And then take that meaning and apply it to today. The application, like I said, may be different. Head coverings. Yeah, we don't do that. It's not a cultural thing. But the meaning behind that, we still absolutely need to apply to it. Okay. As Schleiermacher wrote, religion answers a deep need in man. It is neither a metaphysic nor a morality, but above all, essentially, an intuition and a feeling. Dogmas are not, properly speaking, part of religion. Rather, it is that they are derived from it. Religion is the miracle of direct relationship with the infinite. Dogmas are the reflection of this miracle. So you have a connection with God, and then you come up in a human way with your doctrines and theology. Similarly, belief in God and in personal immortality are not necessarily part of religion. One can conceive of a religion without God, and it would be pure cont contemplation of the universe, because all you're really trying to do is connect with the infinite. The desire for personal immortality actually seems rather to show a lack of religion, since religion assumes a desire to lose oneself in the infinite rather than to preserve one's own finite self. If you're looking to live forever, if you're looking for eternal life, you've misunderstood the concept of religion. The whole point of religion is nirvana. The whole point of religion is to utterly lose one's sense of self and be connected to the infinite. So as part of that criticism, all dogma, all doctrine, all theology, should be seen as a human addition to the original text, which itself is nothing more than an artifact of its context. It's just a reflection of its times. All contemporary religion is nothing more than an artifact of its context, too. 
So, nothing is true or eternal in religion. It's just whatever makes you feel like it's meaning, meeting your felt needs in your cultural context. Whatever makes you feel good. I had a, I had a religion prof in, in college uh, who was a deacon in his Lutheran church and an atheist. But he liked religion. It felt good. It made him feel good, even though he didn't believe in it. So, if the church stood against homosexuality in the 1950s, sure. In the 1950s, they hated homosexuality. Since we don't hate homosexuality now, the church shouldn't. Because religion should just reflect its times, not try to change them. Just be that. Unless the stuff we should change. Therein lies some of the fun of liberality. No, no, no. Don't try to change things, except for the stuff we think you should change, by golly. All that, now, all that technically does, point of practice, tend to link liberal Christianity with liberal politics nowadays, somewhere, in that both of them suggest that doctrines, whether political doctrines or religious doctrines, should shift to meet perceived felt needs within society. And that's the whole point of conservatism, is we're going to conserve our traditions and liberality, we say, ah, we're open-minded. So there can oftentimes be a link between liberal Christianity and liberal politics. But don't automatically go there. That's not what the term is necessarily getting at. Um, so, for instance, Schleiermacher is like, oh yeah, that whole social action thing of the Moravians, of the Moravian Pietists, helping people, being nice, living well, um, building bridges in Paraguay. Yeah, that's what Christianity should be all about. That's stuff that we should do. That whole doctrinal thing, not so much. Which is why, in large part, we have kind of a social gospel movement in the United States where we're going and helping people, helping the poor, I mean, don't tell them about Jesus. Don't infect your good Christianity with wacky stuff like doctrine. I deal with all this all the time, even within our denomination, of people going, oh, let's get past doctrine. Like, ooh, let's not. Let's do social action based on doctrine, not remove doctrine so that we can do all that social action. Now, interestingly, modern liberal Christianity has kind of lost the focus that Schleiermacher originally intended by it. For instance... The view that you shouldn't hold on to any traditional dogmas has itself become kind of a dogma. You shouldn't hold on to dogmas is itself dogmatic, right? So you start having your own problems. Liberal Christians don't just think that conservative Christians are missing an opportunity to understand the Bible in its original and modern context. They think that they're wrong. If you are truly a Schleiermacher liberal, can you think that another person is wrong for interpreting based on their social context. If you're doing it right, you can't say you're wrong if you're being a Schleiermacher kind of liberal. That's dogma, right? Um, when you're basically only open-minded enough to be open-minded toward the people who are the same brand of open-minded that you are, you're not open-minded anymore. And an amazing number of people don't get that. They'll think, well, conservatives are closed-minded and they're oftentimes right. And liberals are, are open-minded they're oftentimes wrong. No, they're, they're, both sides tend to be kind of closed-minded. Secondly, the attempt to make sure that we really understand the Bible in its original context has led liberal Christianity to eisegete the original contexts. Because we've got to figure out what was actually going on there. So, for instance, in 1878, a guy named Wellhausen argued that instead of attributing the Pentateuch to Moses, like people had always done for years, we should probably just assume layers of writers and rewriters who each brought their own dogmas to the, to the table. This is different people obviously writing this over time. It's not just one person. So, for instance, there's a Yahwist source. And if you're German, Yahwist starts with a J, right? There's a Yahwist source that's concerned with God's actions in human history. 
Anytime you see somebody using the name Yahweh, obviously that's that guy, right? Because he, he tends to call God Yahweh. This, this hypothetical guy. It's clearly him. There's the Elohim source. Anytime you see somebody using the word God about God, that's clearly this hypothetical guy. Much more impersonal. Dealing with other kinds of philosophical things. There's a Deuteronomist source who's concerned all about the law. So anytime you start hearing people talking about the law, or anytime somebody stresses the commands of God, it's clearly this hypothetical God. There's also a priestly source. So anytime that, that you're hearing about the priest, anything about managing or controlling people, because that's what priests do. So anytime that you have something where you say, here's what people should do, um, let's talk about lists of genealogies, let's give religious directions, it's clearly this hypothetical guy. Four completely different sets of writers, maybe even, not just four people, maybe four sets the hammer, everything looks like a nail. So once you start reading all this into it, that's what you're going to see. Right? No, but it is dogma. Because what it is, is it's saying this is clearly the truth. I mean, if you read almost any book about the Pentateuch, you'll, you'll hear stuff about JDP. And, and they'll be going into this stuff. Even really good non-liberal things still have to deal with the scholarship because this has become the last 200 years kind of, or 150 years kind of the thing. The same sort of source criticism was used by the Jesus Seminar in 1985 <laughs> when they decided which things in the Bible Jesus clearly never really said. Uh, no, not again. So the, these, uh. these couple of things we can keep in red letter because Jesus clearly said this. This, I don't know that he said, so we'll make that pink. This, it's possible but not probably said, we'll make that gray. And this stuff, he clearly didn't say, so we'll make that black. Right? Because once you decide that you can figure out which things Jesus didn't actually say, will you find things that Jesus didn't actually say? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Once I start looking for, I mean, seriously, honestly looking for, evidence in my life that Wendy may in fact be an alien, if I start really going, let me, let me start looking for this, am I going to find stuff? Absolutely. If, oh, absolutely. If I actually think she is probably an alien, and I just need to find the evidence, yes. So if you actually think your spouse might be cheating on you, if you think your friend is probably lying to you, are you going to find evidence of that? I guarantee you are. Whether they are or not, I guarantee that you will. Yeah. Well, I'm just... Uh, this is what they taught me at Hope College. I'm that stuff. And I was like, you know what? In the religion classes. Yeah. And, and the guy went wah, 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 on and on and on, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> And I was like, you guys are spouting all this stuff because you want to feel like you're smart. You don't care about God. You don't want to listen to him. You want to listen to your own ideas, and you want to listen to somebody else come up with a cool idea of what it meant to him. And I'm like, this is all about you guys. Mm-hmm. Y'all need to shut your face. <laughs> I'm very conservative. Um, but I, I, I agree. And Ben, you are, you could totally be Pastor Kevin at this moment. Because that whole idea of going, you don't, don't start with, well, here's what I feel. Because they think they're not. They think they're exegeting. They're, they're like, oh, no, we're really looking at the context and building from there. And you go, but you're inventing a context. You're eisegeting at the foundation of what you're thinking as inherently dangerous. So yes, couldn't couldn't state it more passionately. You're absolutely right. There's an inherent danger in going. Well, what do you feel like it means? What do you feel like the context probably was? 
well, without having done much history or, or looking at this, I'm going to assume this. Now let me go back and look at it. Yeah, well, then you'll find it. And that is inherently dangerous. What? Well, just some of the textual criticism. I'm, I'm just scared that maybe we're going a little too I mean, just that idea of voice and words and I mean not that they this tell is what, us, but I mean just I, I'm worried that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater of the textual criticism and using different words from different centuries and ways that they examine a text. So that's what I worry right now that I mean I understand what your point is, but I just worry that we're even throwing out some of the the study of actual hermeneutics and stuff. So I'm a little scared that we're also throwing that out. That's Which is why I prefaced all of this by saying I got my first master's in this. Yes, you get it, but I don't know that all of our audience gets it. Okay, let me reiterate. That's what I'm saying. What I, the, the idea of saying that you should examine things in their cultural context is crucial. The idea of saying that if you really want to understand something, the best way to understand an artifact is to look at it from its original cultural context, using its original verbiage and everything. And I, I said this, but it's probably good to finish with this again. That's a good thing. To read into that context, to assume eisegetically that context, or to assume that since it was written within a particular context, it is only a reflection of that context, and thus perfectly malleable, and it can be, you can have it mean whatever you want it to mean in your context. Those are inherently dangerous liberal perspectives. So, go ahead. Then we got to finish up. Yeah, you see this sometimes in uh, secular histories where um, sometimes people will start with a premise, an assumption of how they think things in the past were, or how they think people thought. And so they'll construct the way they interpret everything else from that assumption they made. But if you, some, a lot of times, if you go back to more like primary sources and stuff, just read other historians are regurgitating, you'll find that a lot of those assumptions are false and removed, but they just keep getting perpetuated. And that, but that goes both ways. It's like Kevin said last week, we can all be myopic. So we just got to really watch that when we're going really far, that we, yeah, like you said, go back more to the primary sources, use context, use all those kinds of things. So, so the, the problem isn't historical context, the problem isn't rhetorical criticism, the problem isn't even source criticism. The problem that we're talking about here is what Schleiermacher and his, and his spiritual descendants here have done with those things and the basic assumptions that go at it with. So I'll, I'll end with something we talked earlier about. Napoleon was short and he, he kept sticking his hand in his, in his vest, right? Because I, I saw the pictures and I don't do that, so it just must be him, right? That's, that would be improper source criticism. Looking at it going, I looked at the primary source, he had his hand stuck in his pocket. And for me, what I think that means, then you're a doofus. That's not what that means. Um, Abraham Lincoln was clearly gay. Clearly gay. Because he wrote, the, there are guys who, that he wrote letters to saying, you know, all my love. And there was one time where, for a couple months, he shared a bed with a guy at a flat. Everybody did that. It was cold and but if I'm looking for evidence that he's gay, yeah. nobody shares beds with guys today. Therefore, clearly, he's who's gay. You go, well, that's just bad, bad historical context. You're reading this badly into this sort of thing. So, I mean, there's, there's um, in, inherent problems with the way we tend to do some of that stuff. I would say that a lot of that is, is coming off the Schleiermacher way of looking at 
religion as something that is purely there to make you feel like your felt needs are met. We actually have to stop now. So, yeah. Uh, emphasis uh, around at this time. They wrote a book. I know that Carol and I uh, took the writer of that book with the Jeet at times. Okay. Uh, book with, but it's titled uh, "Commission, Recognizing, mm -hmm. and Compassion." So having those two in hand to hand. Saying we don't dig in deep enough in the compassion side. In the love. Don't tell a message, but we don't do it in a way that uh, we need to know them first before. Absolutely. It's a good book. Absolutely. Well, that's excellent. But uh, holding those two things in tandem, realizing if all we ever do is go build bridges, great, we've built bridges, and that's it. If all we ever do is tell people, go and be, fed, be well fed, they'll starve. We didn't do the gospel. To do both of these together, to say, let me give you truth, and let me help with tangible help together, compassion and commission. Excellent. Let's end with that. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to build on the foundations of those who have gone before us. Help us, Lord, to really understand what it is that what it is that they've done for us. Help us to understand our own history. Help us to see um, the good and the bad in, um, in our theology, the good and the bad in our exegesis, in our hermeneutic. Help us, Lord, to be able to to look at history and to see how we've arrived where we're at now so that we can point ourselves in healthy directions from this point. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. One of his, uh